podcast today on the podcast we have our final message for the season of epiphany the title of this message is made for valleys we're looking at the passage where jesus is transfigured on the mountain in front of peter james and john what this reveals about God and His purposes. Just a reminder, we have an Ash Wednesday service coming up at 7 o'clock on Ash Wednesday, and we will be having video devotionals Monday through Friday for the season of Lent, so you can check that out on our website, northshorevineyard.org. Thanks for listening. Our passage today is Matthew 17, verse 1 through 9. It's on the front of your bulletin. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Well, for the last seven weeks, we have been in the uh, part of the church calendar that that celebrates uh, Epiphany. This is actually a season in the church calendar. And Epiphany means revelation. It is how God reveals himself. So each week we've been kind of discussing uh, different passages that show how God reveals himself to us. And today is really one of my favorite passages that talks about a revelation of Jesus. Next week we'll be in the season of Lent and we'll be discussing Lent passages for uh, up until Easter. But I love this story. We have Jesus taking Peter, James, and John, who were his inner circle within the 12 disciples, and he takes them up on this mountain. And while they're there, they notice something about Jesus. He begins to glow, to radiate, becoming blinding white light. And then they notice he's not alone. He's actually carrying a conversation with Moses and Elijah The same Moses that many centuries earlier had ascended another mountain, Mount Sinai, and was surrounded by the glory of God, the cloud of God's glory for weeks, and came down that mountain with two stone tablets engraved with the law of God. 
Moses, the representative of the Old Testament law, and Elijah, the prophet, the representative of the Old Testament prophets. And in this moment, when I put myself in their shoes, I'm thinking, if I was up on top of a mountain with Jesus and Jesus starts glowing, blinding white light, and then I see Moses and, and Elijah, I'd, my jaw would just drop and I'd probably get really quiet. But we all have that one friend, don't we? That one friend who is prone to blurting out things. <laughs> I ain't pointing anybody out, Nina. Um, we all have that one friend who doesn't have a filter, who is prone to, to, to saying things that they feel that other people may actually be feeling at the same time, but have good enough sense to keep their mouths shut. And Peter is just such a person. In this moment where I think many of us would get quiet and our jaws, we'd just be going, whoa. Peter's like, it's awesome to be here. Jesus, you, Moses, Elijah, let's stay here. How about I put up some tents, we make camp, we just, this is a lot better than that stuff down at the bottom of the mountain. Let's stay here. But Peter doesn't even get finished continuing his train of thought when all of a sudden around them they are overwhelmed by a cloud like fog. The very glory of God, as the Old Testament refers to it, the Shekinah glory, the same glory that, that surrounded Moses on the top of that mountain, the same glory of God's presence that filled the Temple of Solomon on the day it was dedicated to the point where the priests and the Levites fell face down because they couldn't stand in God's presence. That same glory overwhelms them and they hear a voice. This is my son whom I love. With whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now Peter finally shuts up. <laughs> and so does James and John. Next thing they know, they are lying, terrified, face down on the ground. It's a moment where they just realize we are in way over our heads. And Jesus comes over to him and says, Don't be afraid. Get up. They look up, and now it's just Jesus. No cloud, no Moses, no Elijah. And they go back down the mountain. You know, when I read the Bible, one of the questions I consistently ask when I come to, particularly the gospel chapters, we have the words of Jesus, but I'm always interested in how Jesus acts and what that reveals about God. So, for instance, when we come to the story of the birth of Jesus, my question is, why did Jesus, in coming to our world, choose to be born in a manger, <laughs> in a stable? What does that say about God? What does it say about how God handles power? What does it say about God's mission? What does it say about how God is relational? Or when we look at Jesus keeping company with the wrong crowds, sharing a meal with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, what does this say about how God reacts with people, human beings? And when I come to this passage, I ask that question. What does this passage reveal to us about God? It's epiphany after a while. What does this reveal about God? Well, I think from the, the, the theological side, the fact that we see Moses and Elijah right there in the midst of Jesus' transfiguration, this is saying that Moses 
And Elijah are there affirming that Jesus is the point of everything they were doing. That a greater glory than Moses is, has now appeared on another mountain, not Mount Sinai. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. In this passage, we also get a, a, a window into the Trinity. We see Jesus transfigured. We see the Holy Spirit surrounding them as a cloud. And we hear the voice of the Father. So there's theological things that we see. But what I'm interested in, why did Jesus take his disciples up there for this reason? I mean... What was the purpose of this thing? Maybe this is what happened with Jesus all the time. You know, we, we read these passages where it says, and Jesus went away to a quiet place to pray. Maybe every time Jesus went away to a quiet place to pray, he was, it was like that, the cloud of God's glory, and he was talking with Moses and Elijah. Maybe that's the way it happened all the time. We don't know. But why did Jesus bring these disciples into this experience? What was this experience meant to do? And I can only speculate, so I'm about to speculate. Here's what I think. I think Jesus brought Peter, James, and John to the top of this mountain because he knew that they needed this experience to get them through the tough days to come. If you read just a few verses past this passage, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and his disciples said, hey, wasn't Elijah supposed to precede the coming of the Messiah? And Jesus said, yeah, and Elijah's already come. And they understood it to mean that John the Baptist was the Elijah person. And Jesus said, but you know what? They didn't listen to John the Baptist. They killed him, and they're going to do the same thing to me. And Jesus goes on a few verses later to predict his death a second time. He's going to be crucified. Now, it's funny to me that you can find multiple examples where Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to be crucified by the, uh, the collusion between the, the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And most of the, you, you just get this sense when you read the Gospels that no matter how many times Jesus told them this, the disciples were like, oh, he's, he's speaking in metaphors. He's, he's telling us another one of those parables because they're, they're, they just can't see it. Because their paradigm of how God works and how the Messiah is going to show up is, is completely different from what Jesus reveals. A lot of people don't realize that in the century up, leading up to the first century, there was many would-be messiahs. Like Judah the Hammer, uh, the Judah, Judas Maccabeus who a hundred years before led a revolt, the Maccabean Revolt, and they, they actually took over. And everybody was proclaiming Judas Maccabeus to be the Messiah. But how did he do it? He led an armed revolt. They overthrew the government. They took up arms. They killed people. That is the way people expected that the Messiah was going to do this thing. He's going to stage a violent coup, and they will establish Israel. I think this experience that they had up on the mountain was Jesus pulling back ordinary reality to reveal his glory to them so that it could change them. It could alter the way they understood things. I think even when the voice of the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, whom I love, listen to him, was very important 
Because if they were just going by their own eyes, their own ears, their own understanding of their circumstances, they would feel like they had completely believed a lie. Because this person they believed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, was going to be tried on false charges. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be crucified. And it was going to be a very dark hour for every one of those disciples. And I believe that this moment was meant to, to, as, as a formative thing to change them. You know, I've had a handful of what I would call mystical experiences in my life as a follower of Jesus. I've had a few moments. I mean, they weren't quite like this, seeing Jesus transfigured. But I've had some experiences with God that were pretty crazy. I remember one experience in particular. I was probably about two years into being a Christian and I'd gotten to a point that in spite of how disciplined I was I, and I've read the Bible more than all y'all um, I, was, I was reading the Bible all the time I was reading devotionals all the time I would only listen to worship music I was up at every prayer service they had at the church I was at I served in church every weekend I played on the worship team I did everything that you should do to be a Christian and yet after two years I felt empty and dead on the inside and I told God one Sunday morning I was probably about 23 years old I told God I can't do this anymore if this is the abundant life of which you speak, I must be doing it wrong. But I'm trying to do everything I can to figure this out. And I just can't do it anymore. And if something doesn't happen this morning, God, I'm going back to my old life tonight. And I meant it. I wasn't trying to be coffee. I'm just like, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. At least when I was lost, I was having some fun. <laughs> you know? I don't seem to be having any fun. I, I'm just withering here. And that morning I went to church. And I don't remember what the worship team sang. I don't remember even what the, the pastor preached the same way that most of y'all probably won't remember what I preached today about 20 minutes after you leave. No. No, you'll remember. You'll carry this message forever in your heart. That's what I like to tell myself. Uh, I don't remember much about that morning except at the end of the service, the pastor invited people up to the front who needed prayer. And I went up for prayer. Now, it was a very charismatic church that I was at, so I had some very charismatic prayers praying on me, I mean, over me. <laughs> and, and, and carrying on, and, and nothing happened. And then one person came up to me, and I don't know if it was a woman or a man, probably a woman, because it was a very gentle prayer. They just put their hand on my back. I couldn't even hear what they were praying but in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit descend upon me in such a powerful way that the next thing I know, I'm laying down on the floor. I had not been to counseling as an adult. I didn't know anything about dealing with wounds or issues in your past. I wasn't aware that I had any wounds or issues. Most people in their early 20s are clueless to that. you got to get beat around by life a bit. Um, but I was just laying there on the floor, and God began to show me some things that had come from an ex a really bad experience I'd had in high school. 
and how really I'd made a decision at that point in my life because of the hurts that I had experienced that I was never going to trust another, another person again. And not only that, I had taken the same attitude to God. And there, laying on the floor, it was like I had Holy Spirit heart surgery. It really was. Because when I got up 20 or 30 minutes later, I was a different person. I mean, it was like the Wizard of Oz where things go from black and white to technicolor. It really was like that. I'm telling you, I felt intoxicated. I had to get somebody to drive me home. I'm like, I, this stuff is so good. I can't, I can't stand up. It was the best feeling ever. And I remember going home that day. It was like fall. And you know how everything around here in the fall is just kind of gray and drab. And, but yet, even with the, the gray and drab of fall, it felt like the lights had been turned on. The colors were popping. I understood things in a different way. It was the first time in my life where I actually began to understand the grace of God, not simply intellectually, but at the core of my being. Here was an experience where God, by his grace, just showed up. And it wasn't because anything I did. I was ready to quit. I was on my way out. I was going back to my old life that evening. I had it planned out. It wasn't anything I did. And I cannot totally identify with Peter in this passage. This is great. <laughs> this is amazing. I want to stay here for the rest of my life. And so you know what I did for the next several years? I tried to find that experience again. And I had other experiences with God that were powerful. Still to this day, I've never had anything as, as powerful as that experience. But looking back on it, I realize that even when I come to this passage today, that our natural tendency so often is when we have a powerful experience with God that is an act of God's grace. We try to figure out everything that went into that experience and we try to make it happen again, don't we? I remember back in the mid-90s, there was all these uh, different revivals popping up in different parts of the United States. And in Toronto, you had the Toronto Blessing. It was a vineyard church that, that had this big renewal service that went on for several years. And in Pensacola, there was the uh, Brownsville Revival, and, uh, and which went on for several years. And I remember going to the Brownsville Revival uh, because I was going to every revival that there was. I was always just chasing it, you know, going from one worship thing to revival to renewal, uh, because I wanted that feeling. And I went to Brownsville, and, and it was impactful. I loved the worship, and, and I, I experienced God in that service. But I remember going back there probably a year, year and a half later. And I remember there's a quote from Bono, the rock star. And Bono of U2 said this. He said, religion is what happens when God has left the building. And I'm not saying God had left the building, but when I went back a year and a half later, it felt like they were trying to do a formula. This is the way God showed up on that first Father's Day when we had the, the first Holy Spirit encounter. And here we are a couple of years later, and we're trying to do that same formula again. We're going to worship this long, have this kind of message, and then have an altar call and have this girl sing this song. Because when she sang this song, that's how it all happened. And it became the whole formula. And it just felt very contrived. It felt very forced. It didn't feel like it had the, 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 the stuff on it. <laughs> and I look back to that time in my life, and I realized that, you know, at, after spending several years, you know, studying addictions and dealing with my own issues, 
I realized that these mystical experiences, as important as they are to our faith, when we begin to chase them, we become almost like addicts. We start viewing the mystical experience as a way to escape reality rather than God doing in something in our hearts so that we can step into reality with greater clarity, with greater healing and greater freedom. Peter, James, and John had an amazing experience with God, but Jesus wasn't interested in camping out on the mountain. They went down. And what does Jesus do immediately when he comes down the mountain? That part's not in your scripture today. But if you read a little bit further, they get to the bottom of the mountain and they find a young boy who has basically what we would call epilepsy today. Having seizures and Jesus casts the spirit out of him. The boy is healed. He's set free. See, we are prone to, to seek these experiences. And if you've ever had a mystical, supernatural experience with God, those are the most awesome things ever. I mean, I can't think of anything in my life that compares with those times where I've experienced God in a powerful way. But I've come to see over the years that when I have an experience like that, it's not an end in and of itself. God is doing something in me so they can do something through me. So I would say it's good to expect God to reveal himself in powerful ways. And when we get those things, cherish them, <laughs> savor them. But we don't need to become spiritual tourists who are trying to escape this world we're in. We need to realize that, you know, what God was doing in me on the floor that day, that heart surgery, it wasn't just about me. God was trying to do something in me so that I could be a more loving person and more generous person and, and actually move out into the world. When I look back on that time in my life, I, I look at so many of the people I was hanging around with that were doing the same things. And we had become basically a collection of fruits, nuts, and flakes that had lost the ability to connect with anybody outside of our group. I mean, even other Christians. I mean, if you were another Christian and you weren't in our little way of dealing with things, we, couldn't, we, we spoke a different language. Instead of thrusting ourselves into being the hands and feet of Jesus in the community, we pulled away from the community and tried to camp out on that mountaintop experience. I want to close with something that I read uh, many years ago. For those of y'all, anybody ever read My Utmost Forest Heights, Oswald Chambers? That's a great devotional. It's old. I mean, it goes back to like early 1900s, I think. But this is what Oswald Chambers says about this passage. He says, We have all experienced times of exaltation on the mountain when we have seen things from God's perspective and have wanted to stay there. But God will never allow us to stay there. The true test of our spiritual life is in exhibiting the power to descend from the mountain. If we only have the power to go up, something is wrong. It is a wonderful thing to be on the mountain with God, but a person only gets there so that he may later go down and lift up the demon-possessed people in the valley. We are not made for the mountains, for sunrises, or for other beautiful attractions in life. Those are simply intended to be moments of inspiration. We are made for the valley, 
and the ordinary things of life. And that is where we have to prove our stamina and strength. Yet our spiritual selfishness always wants repeated moments on the mountain. We feel that we could talk and live like perfect angels if we could only stay on the mountaintop. Those times of exaltation are exceptional. And they have their meaning in our life with God, but we must beware to prevent our spiritual selfishness from wanting to make them the only time. I read once, I forgot the person's name, God comes to us so often disguised as our ordinary life. And I know when it comes to mystical religious experiences, you know, there's a lot of people who just fall into either two different camps. Either it's like, let's go after mystical experiences all the time, or God doesn't do that stuff. I would just offer a third road. Yes, God does that stuff. And when that happens, cherish it, love it, receive from it, be changed and transformed by it. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that's the only way to encounter God. Because most of life, when I look back at my life during those years, I realized that I had attached my own happiness to my ability to experience these profound things with God. And so whenever I was experiencing these mountaintop experiences, God loved me. But whenever I was in ordinary life, God didn't love me. God was gone. And I think it's a both-and thing. We learn how to discover God in the everyday, ordinary things of life. We learn how to discover God in suffering and in pain. We learn how to discover God in beauty and inspiration. And we learn how to discover God when we are overwhelmed in a mystical experience. Why don't you all stand up? Father God, I just pray for every one of us in here, God. We are so grateful for your presence in our lives. We are grateful for those times when you show up to us as an act of your grace, Lord. When you bring healing in a moment or freedom from something that we have been blind to, God. We are thankful for those moments and we ask you for more of those in our lives, God. But I pray also that even as we experience those times with you, God, that we wouldn't make the mistake of Peter and just try to camp out there, that we wouldn't turn it into some religious formula that negates relationship with you, God. We would learn how to receive your blessings. We would learn to move with what you're doing in our hearts that we could touch other people with the life and the love and the compassion for which you've touched us. So I bless every person in here with that today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're in here and you would like some people to pray with you this morning, we'd just like to invite you up here to the front. We'll have some members of our prayer team. See you back here on Wednesday night if you want to join us for our Ash Wednesday service. God bless. The end.